0: Okay, hey, this morning let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Last week, last week I looked at where the Scripture tells us to enter in. This morning I'm going to look at drawing near. Entering, entering into God's presence, now drawing near to God's presence. Remember, I have moved from a large doctrinal section in Hebrews chapter ten through the half of Hebrews uh, chapter one through chapter ten, and and now we come to this place in Scripture where doctrine fleshes out in deeds. I've been insisting on in Hebrews actually has been insisting on correct teaching. Now we look at consistent behavior. In other words, the teaching of Scripture not only needs to be received by us, that's where it starts, but it needs to be appropriated by us. Not just sitting there, getting a big old fat head of knowledge, but actually doing something with what God is teaching you. Now How do we do that? Well, Scripture doesn't leave us alone on that matter. It doesn't leave us guessing on that matter. And so in chapter 10, we have a section here of, of exhortation and encouragement, and then a section of warning. That's always the pattern of the one who's preaching hebrews uh so in the first part, we're given really four appropriate responses to the to the preceding doctrine, everything from the ten and a half chapters of Hebrews that have gone before, and believers are exhorted into action because they possess something they have something they didn't have before they they have something that they didn't earn something that they didn't deserve. They have been given something by God because of his divine mercy and grace towards sinners. That's why, in those verses, in verse number 19, where it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, and then in verse 21, since we have a great high priest, uh, So the Bible, again, is indicating to us that we have in our possession already something very quite unique and very important for us. So the great and grand truth, which is for all of God's children, is that based on this one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God forgets our sins. He forgets all our violations of His law. And he purges them forever. So there is no, no longer a need for any other sacrificial system. There is no need for a ritual and ceremony at all whatsoever. But because of Christ's full and final death for sins, for all time believers are made right before a holy and a just God and given access to God. That's awesome. It's an awesome thought. And last week I said that there are two things that need to accompany our approach to God. The first one was that followers of Jesus Christ are to enter the holy place with confidence, with boldness, with assurance, but not based on anything. Based on truth, based on doctrine, based on what Christ has already done. In fact, if we don't come based on our understanding of what Christ has done, we come wrongly. In fact, I I was studying this week on this passage of Scripture, and of course I'm leading to prayer again this morning, and I begin to think to myself, I don't know if I've really ever prayed in my life. Now, what I mean by that is that I need to rethink this whole thing from a scriptural standpoint, how important it is to come into the presence of God, that true believers already have a confidence. They're given by the establishment of truth in their mind and heart, and they are exhorted to go directly into God's presence with boldness, meaning freedom of speech and courage to express their personal needs before God. So the last time the message ended with a challenge for prayer, I don't know if any too many people heeded that message. Hopefully you did, and you're thinking about it. So I'm going to go back to that great practice of the Christian's lifestyle of faith, which has to do with prayer. But before I do that, there is something else, a second thing that needs to accompany our approach to God. And it's this. Followers of Jesus Christ are to draw near with sincerity. They're to draw near to God with sincerity. and I'm going to take a long time to get to that. I'm going to take some time to get to it because I really want you to get it. see once again what the word of god is telling the believer it tells them that they already have something in their possession in verse 21 of hebrews 10 it says and since we have a high priest over the house of god it's it is in that passage of scripture Something that it comes from verse number 19 about we have something. There's a confidence in the verbs there in the Greek. Not many people can say that I have a high priest that can take me the whole way into the presence of God. Not many people could say that. Because our high priest has the authority over the whole house of God. It says there, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. He determines who can enter. It's I, somebody who lives in Washington, D.C., I'm sure there's many people walking on the street that can point that, a, a bunch of people to the White House. But how many people can actually take them in to the presence of the president? Few. And they have to have all kinds of security clearances to get there. You don't just walk in the door. Right? Well, how much more is it with God? People think they know God. They they think they have a relationship with God because they're religious or they go to church or that they're good people. And you know what? They're wrong. Because if if you think on those grounds you can enter into the presence of God, you are mistaken. Only those who God has given the authority can enter into His presence. The Lord has given us the authority to become the children of God. The right to come into the presence of a holy God. That is something that is quite awesome. So we can trust God for His greatness and His power as the high priest, as our high priest for those who know Christ, and then press on in our Christian pilgrimage no matter what befalls us. On the way to the celestial city as Pilgrim describes in Pilgrim's Progress. See, while we're moving and while we're growing in Christ-likeness, we should be practicing going to Christ in prayer. For necessary strength, for grace, because of our weaknesses, we need a high priest's assistance. All the purposes of his office of high priests are for our benefit. Every single purpose of his office of high priest is for our benefit. Now, Hebrews has suffi- sufficiently covered that in chapter 5. And if you want to turn back there real quick, and let me just go over some of the things it says about the high priest, and our high priest is a compassionate one. In this way that Jesus knows exactly how we feel. He knows exactly what we are going through. He knows the pressures of life, the testing of life in a godless world. He knows all that, and he knows it to a further extent than anyone of us could ever experience. And it says in verse 15 of chapter 5, Jesus, our great high priest, is deeply concerned about our weaknesses, where it says... Verse 15 of chapter 5, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. See, this means that the Lord, in his affections, he is moved inwardly toward us while we suffer and go through trials with a sense of empathy. He knows what we're going through further than we do. A second thing in verse 15, that Jesus, our great high priest, understands us. It says there, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So, see, Jesus in his perfect humanity is familiar with our temptations and our problems. He was tempted. And not only that, but tempted by every means, by all instruments by all directions as we are and in fact to a deeper extent because Jesus is aware of our needs to the fullest and has gone to a place that we could never have gone. As C.S. Lewis said, we never find out strength, the strength of evil impulse inside of us until we fight it. And Christ, because... He was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means. And he becomes the only realist when it comes to temptation. We give up way too soon in our temptation. We give in too soon. We, we throw in the towel too soon. Jesus never threw in the towel. In a sense, he went the full 16 rounds and beyond. Being a ring, in a ring with a fire fighter going 16 rounds is an awesome task whether you win or lose if you're still standing at the end you've done something right it's saying here that christ went way past that and never gave in never dropped for us so he understands what we're going through so that means that our high priest jesus christ knows all about sin without having sinned and because he has passed through the heavens Into God's presence, Jesus now has broken down all the obstacles that could hinder a sinful human being from coming into God's holy presence and perfect presence. And now he welcomes all those who come through Jesus Christ to come boldly. Look at chapter 5, verse 16. It says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace now in chapter 10 he says the same thing but he says it with a more doctrine behind it more truth and teaching behind it and so remember that confidence is that freedom to come before god the obstacles removed the free right to approach god with bold frankness frankness was given because of the sacrifice of jesus christ and that's the only way we can actually come into the presence of god So that means that believers have daily access to God for grace and assistance. And all the formalities have been fulfilled and removed in Christ. So all we need is to come and receive continual help. Now that was a big problem for, remember, his audience was basically Jewish. And everything about the Judaism was pumped and Ceremony and ritual and preparation and consecration and all those things and now the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, all those things are done. Come to Christ. None of that. You don't need the do priesthood. You don't need do all those things. You just come directly to God. Come to your high priest and call upon the name of the Lord. See, this is why we cannot be prayerless as believers. We cannot be prayerless. And don't think that you can cope with life without divine help. Don't think you can live this impossible Christian life without divine help. You cannot do it. See, we must accept the invitation to follow our Lord Jesus boldly into the holy place. One man, maybe rightfully so, said... He actually insisted that prayerlessness was the root of all sin. See, Jesus knew that he had to pray and did so gladly and necessarily and effectively. Now, it's one thing to talk about prayer. It's quite another thing to actually what? Pray. Right? We talk about prayer all day. We can read books on prayer all day, all month, all year. We'll go to prayer. And I'll tell you what, prayer is the most difficult discipline in the Christian life. Tell me it's not. Tell me it's not. Going to prayer on a regular daily basis is difficult. So there's a difficulty in prayer. Matter of fact, there's many difficulties in prayer. Prayer, brethren, is not an easy thing to practice. In fact, it is extremely difficult. Yet we are being taught here in this scripture that we are to know exactly how to pray. We are to approach God with confidence and boldness and and assurance in prayer. See, do you pray like that? Do you pray like that? Do I pray like that? The question's for myself too. In fact, our Lord helps us to see the difficulty and the struggle in prayer. Just look at his life when you follow him through the Gospels, that when Jesus was in the days of his flesh, what did he do in the days of his flesh? He, He prayed, right? Look back to Hebrews 5, look at verse 7. Notice what he says here, that The Lord had to depend on the Father's aid in Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of His flesh, He offered up both, notice what it says, prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save Him from death. What does that say in that passage? Does it say that prayer is easy, an easy thing? You just go in and just just do it? it? No, in that passage, if Jesus Christ struggled in prayer, in the flesh, and he was not a sinner, how much more us? And we don't think prayer is that serious. Sometimes we don't think seriously on it. And Jesus was under the full pressure of humanity. And therefore, he became a man of sorrows, acquainted with what? Grief. He became a man of prayer where it says he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying, meaning his soul was being ripped apart as he came before the Father anticipating what was going to take place. And remember, when he, he knelt in the garden that night when he was arrested and his face, and he was faced with a humanly terrifying death, such a divinely necessary sacrifice that only the father could rescue him and save him from that death yes he could go to one who could save him rescue him and that was his father because his father set out the plan of salvation so see how much should we pray in the days of our flesh and in fact, the Lord right now is exalted to the right hand of God. And what is he doing? He's interceding for the saints. Why? He's praying for us while we're in the flesh. Someday the intercessory ministry of Christ is going to end. He won't have to pray for us because we're, not, we're no longer going to be in the flesh. We're going to be glorified in new bodies with him, before him. So I'm saying all that for this reason. There's obstacles to prayer if we can identify those obstacles and remove them, then we're going to be better equipped to understand how to approach God and do it with confidence, assurance, boldness. They're all the same word, but they give the sense that I'm coming before God assured of something, of something I have, of something that's happened to me, of something in my possession, of something that God has done for me and I did not contribute to it at all. But, Here, in the practical part of doctrine, I am contributing to something. Because God asks me to do something. He asks me to come. After I have been a believer to come. But I want to look at some of the obstacles found here in Scripture and and lift them out of here in a little bit of a different way and then come back to them. And so our text actually helps us to identify some real obstacles to prayer And there are at least three that we can glean this morning. Look at verse 21. The first obstacle to prayer is that we are entering into, notice, the house of God. We're entering to the house of God. And you say, well, why is that a problem? Well, we are entering to the holiest place there is in the universe. And prayer means that we are entering into the very presence of God. We are not talking to ourselves, even though we may think that sometime. We are not talking to anyone else when we are praying. We are actually talking to God when we pray. That's got to be very clear in your mind when you come to prayer. Because we have to come in a certain way to God. We have to approach Him in a certain way. Why? Because... How can we dwell in the presence of what Isaiah describes a burning light? How can we, like Moses, come before the burning bush without taking up off our shoes, knowing that where I'm standing is holy ground because God's present? I don't respond to God like I respond to human beings. I respond to God in a totally different way. I understand Him based on what scripture tells me about him. The prophet Isaiah says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And even right here in Hebrews, look over to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 28 and 29, where the writer reminds his audience, It says in verse 28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And then verse 29, For our God is a consuming fire. We're coming into the presence of a God who's holy. So no one can enter. No, no one just can just roll in there. People who say, oh, I pray all the time, and they don't come the right way, they, they're deceiving themselves. See, so prayer is not an easy thing. It's an impossible thing. And remember, in the New Covenant, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Word of God. That aids you in prayer. That's the only aid you're going to get in prayer. You're not going to get much aid from your flesh. You're not going to get aid from the world. Or Satan, he's not going to encourage you. In fact, Satan laughs when we don't pray. But he trembles when we do. When God's people are serious about coming into the presence of God in this way, he trembles. So we're mindful that we are approaching a God who is a consuming fire, therefore we ought to do it with reverence and awe. That means with a certain weight that goes with his name, that goes with no other name in the universe. That's on my mind when I approach God. And so therefore, in doing so, we realize if that difficulty is moved out of the way, then I'm understanding prayer more. When I understand who God is in my mind and heart, then I'm understanding how to approach Him. But there's a second difficulty in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 22. And here's the second obstacle. The obstacle of an insincere heart. Now, I'm reversing it. But I want you to know how it says it here in Hebrews 10:22. It says, "...let us draw near with a sincere heart full of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience." See, so here's our second obstacle. An evil conscience. An evil conscience. Would you say that you can ever experience in your own life that you have an evil conscience? And you know, this is not talking, this is talking generally all men, all women have evil consciences. So, Here's our obstacle to prayer. I'm coming to God with an evil conscience. I mean, come on. All of us can justify our behavior before other people and do it pretty well, right? Oh, this is why I did this. This is why I went here. This this is why I didn't do that. And we go along and we justify our actions. But the moment we come before the God who is a consuming fire, our prayer, and with our prayers, our consciences begin to rattle. They begin to shake. They begin to speak to us. And they begin to say to us, you just justified yourself before someone. You can't do that before God. matter of fact, you've got to tell God the way you really are, what you really did this past week how you really thought about that person this past week. So you come to God with an evil conscience, and your conscience is like beginning to move around there when you begin to pray. Because, see, if you come into the presence of a a holy God and you're coming with awe and reverence, then, see, unless a person deals with the conscience, he or she really doesn't pray. He or she cannot pray unless the conscience is dealt with. Doesn't it say in Psalms, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will what? Not hear. See, so our insincere heart, our evil conscience is a problem when we come to prayer. Have you ever experienced that? Here's the third obstacle. Verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 10. Let us draw near, it says, with a sincere heart. Then it, notice what it says. Our hearts sprinkle clean and our bodies washed. Here's the third obstacle. A sense of uncleanness when you come before a holy God. Ever feel unclean before God in prayer? I feel dirty, Lord. I know I'm coming before you. I'm understanding in the Word of God who you are. I want to come with reverence and fear, but I, have, I feel dirty. You know why you feel dirty? Because you've sinned. And you feel dirty, too, because your evil conscience hasn't been dealt with. And so, see, when you come to prayer, you sense your pollution. Sin pollutes us. It gives us a sense, I don't feel clean. We feel dirty. We have a sense of total unworthiness often before God. And a great example of this is David. in fact, David uses these words very clearly about feeling dirty because of his sin and and not how is he going to do? Is he going to go wash twenty five thousand times so he can get the dirt off? What is he going to do he He knows he can't clean the dirt off his conscience. he can't clean the pollution out of his life, so what does he do? Well, One thing I believe the reason why David was a man after God's own heart is because he didn't run away from God, he ran toward God. Because he understood the character of God. So let's turn to Psalm 51 and just pick up some of the passages and just get the sense of what David felt when he sinned before God. In Psalm 51 in verse number 2, You know, David here, of course, if you're not familiar with the passage of Scripture, committed adultery. He should have been at war. He wasn't. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then Bathsheba was married to Uriah. He was a captain in one of of David's armies, so David sent him to the hottest part of the battle, tried to manipulate him to to stay at home and uh, didn't work out. Sent him to the hottest part of the battle, and Uriah got killed. So David was an adulterer and a murderer. If you've been around here for a while, you know that already, but so now Nathan the prophet comes to David and Nathan the prophet acting like, in a sense, the Holy Spirit points his finger in his face and says, you know, gave, gave him this little story about a little lamb and uh, says, oh, and David says, that's a terrible uh, story. I'll get that man who took that. lamb and, and Nathan says, you're the man. What? And he begins to feel convicted and he begins to feel dirty. And he begins to melt before the consuming fire, who's God. And this is what he cries. Look what he says in verse verse number two. Look what he says: "Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity." He uses different words for sin. Iniquity is like crookedness my crooked dealings, my trying to hide everything and manipulate circumstances so I can get my way so it'll look like I didn't commit the sin but someone else committed the sin or maybe no one would notice. And then in verse 3, and then in verse number, actually verse number 2, it says, and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is, what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge, can't wiggle out of judgment, the judgment of God. God knows exactly what's going on. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, my sin, in sin my mother conceived me. So you know what David was realizing? Listen, it's, he was realizing this, that it is really not... My actions, that was the problem. He realized it was his heart that was the problem. See, by time it gets to the actions, it's already done, right? But remember, sin is conceived in your heart. That's where God sees it. That's why if you commit, look at a woman to lust after you already commit adultery, what what does that mean? That means that God sees the sin going on in your heart before you actually act it out. And even if you never act it out, it's still sin. And that's where God's going to judge. If you look at it like that, we're all guilty. We're in big trouble. And see, in this sense, David understood who God is, so he's coming to God feeling dirty. Look at verse number 7. He says, purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He understood that. Now remember, purifying with hyssop is when they used to dip the hyssop branch in the blood and sprinkle it, meaning that that was the covering of sin by the blood sacrifice. And so David says, the only way that my sin could be washed away is by the blood. And then when it is, I'll be whiter than snow before God. And then I'll realize that listen, my dirt and my pollution is gone. So see, God sees the heart. And in verse number 10, look what he says in 51. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He understood the inward complications of the heart, that it was a heart problem before God. So, How in the world can a person riddled with an evil conscience come into the presence of a God who is a consuming fire? How could that ever happen? Well, we need to realize that these obstacles can be overcome. That's the point of this chapter in Hebrews 10. Now, that's what the rest of our text is saying. Our text is saying in Hebrew, you could turn back to Hebrews chapter 10, is how to approach God in the way He requires. So, in looking at that, there are some essentials, at least two, and there's others that go along with it that will aid us to remove the obstacles so we can pray with confidence. And I say all this because how can we go on to the next thing if we have not resolved to take care of our conscience, to take care of the dirt that we have uh, gathered on ourselves through life? How can we approach God? So I'm heading to describe the kind of heart we are to have when we draw near to God. And I'll tell you what, it's not a proud heart. It's not a self-sufficient heart. It's not an insincere heart that God delights in to approach him. No, it's none of those. Any other, any other ones we can add on there. So what kind of heart are we to have when we approach a holy God? Verse 22 We are to have a sincere heart. Look what it says. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. Now, if you have a King James, uh, New King James or ESV, it says a true heart. Right? Maybe that's even a better way to say it. The NAS... 95, and 90, uh, 77, and then the NIV says, let us draw near with a sincere heart. And actually, the word in the Greek actually means, it is the literal word for true, truth. And it's defined like this. Now, the definition is a little bit fuzzy, but I think it'll clear up once I look at the opposite of it. It's defined as th- in this way, that which has not only the name and semblance, but the real nature corresponding to the name. In other words, the opposite of pure gold is adulterated metal. So the word may be better understood when it's put up against its opposite. The word true and sincere is a heart that is not fictitious. It's real. It's a heart that is not counterfeit, but it is authentic. It's a heart that is not imaginary so that it's without fakery. It is a heart that is not simulated, but it is a heart that is the real thing. It is a heart that doesn't pretend, but it is a heart that is without hypocrisy. Another way to put it is this. We approach God with an honest heart. Only way to approach God. Believers, according to our text, we are to draw near to God with a true sincere honest heart which assumes it assumes that we are to be aware of the kind of heart we are coming near God with. We have a certain amount of understanding with our own heart. So we are to have a level of discernment and an ever-growing level of discernment of our own heart and our own tendency to sin in certain areas and the weaknesses that we have in our life that may pull us away from prayer and so therefore remove those things so we can continue to pray. You can't meet with God with an insincere heart. You you can't you can fool people some of the time, don't they say that? But you could never fool God. This is the issue. This is the main issue that he brings up when it comes to the obstacle of prayer. See, are you coming to God with an absolutely honest heart about everything that's going on in your life and in your thoughts? You don't have to sugarcoat things with God. Tell it like it is. If you're sinning in a certain way, tell God, be Blatantly honest with him. This is who I am, Lord. This is the way I'm sinning. This is what makes me feel dirty. This is what keeps me from sin, or keeps me from you, this sin and prayer. This is what stops me from proclaiming your name. This is what stops me from being a loving husband. Or a loving wife. This very thing, Lord, I want to be honest with You. This sin is preventing me from approaching You. And I want to get rid of it. I want it done for good. I want to come before You, as the Scriptures tell me, with full assurance of faith. That's the way I want to come. Because, Lord, I know... And I'm not even going to try to fool you or manipulate you or sugarcoat what's going on in my life. I'm going to tell it like it is. I'm going to be honest. Finally, Lord, I'm going to be honest. You know what? You do that, I do that. changes everything. It changes everything whether I'm in the presence, in the holy place or not. It changes my approach to a holy and a consuming God. It changes everything. And not only does it change everything with my relationship with God, it changes everything with my relationship with people. Both change. See, God can never be fooled. If you look back, well, you don't have to look there. You know the passage. Hebrews chapter 4 For the Word of God is living, right? and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, and is able to judge the the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How can you try to fool God if, if that's the case? And it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. See, so how do I approach God? With an honest heart. You know what? You're a believer, you know Christ, you can do it. On the power, by the power of the Spirit, that's exactly what the Scripture is saying. You can remove this obstacle and do it. Now that may be some painful prayer times for you. It may be some restitution that you may have to do after you get off your knees in prayer. It may mean that you need to go to someone and and tell them something because of the sin that you committed against them. It may mean a lot of things when you get off your knees in prayer, but believe me, you won't want to do it any other way because this is God's way. This is the way you have power in your life. This is the way you have victory over sin. This is the way you you can be used with your spiritual gift in the church. This is God's way. And so, but that's not all. You can't be sincere and not come with a heart fully trusting God. That comes next in verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Knowing truth And growing in doctrine will give you a clearer understanding of what the sacrifice of Christ has already done for you. And what kind of heart the Holy Spirit is creating in you. In other words, if I come to God with my conscience riddled with pollution, and I come to God feeling dirty, well, that's already taken care of in the cross. That's why what does 1 John say? We, say, we, we quote it all the time, right? If I confess my sins, right, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive me and to what? Cleanse me. Make me whiter than snow. Why? So I don't go along, keep living my life with this weighed down conscience and feeling dirty when I don't have to. That's the point of what Christ is taking care of completely, forever. But The approach must be made in the right way. And we understand doctrine and what Christ has done to take care of the obstacles. Then, what do we do? We actually, see, knowing the truth, what I was saying, and growing in doctrine will give you a clear understanding of what the sacrifice of Christ has done for you and what kind of heart the Holy Spirit is creating in you. You, the believer, he's creating an opened heart that fully trusts in God. That's what he's creating in you. That's where the boldness comes from. That's where the confidence comes from. In other words, I understand what happened to me in salvation. I understand what the Bible says about all the things Christ accomplish on the cross i understand what that means practically in my life and so therefore i'm going to implement those things and live the way i ought to live i'm going to do that and i'm going to want to do that because remember the lord kept saying in the scripture here in hebrew it's a new and living way right It's a new way. This is not, this is not an old dead religious system. This is not the old rituals and ceremonies of Judaism or any other religious system that is based on works. No, this is a new way. This is a living way. When you come this way, you have life. The new way is the way God has planned from all eternity. And that's the only way you have access into the, into the presence of God. That's the only way. Through Christ. Coming with an honest heart. And there's no real access to God but by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And I said in my prayer this morning, God is not, I mean the gospel is not about what we do. The gospel is about what God has already done. So see, there's no way we can add to something God's already done. What we do is we believe it, right? And follow it. That's what we do. This is what you've done, Lord. That's what I'm going to do. This is what you say. That's how I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. That's what happens in a believer's life. That's what I'm going to do. So see, when a person actually comes to Christ the first time, you know what they actually say to God? Lord, your way is the only way. So I'm giving up all my ways to try to get saved, and I'm going to follow your way. See, that's the prayer that God hears. Until that point, you're not on praying ground. So a rock singer who gets up there and says, I pray, I pray, I pray to the Lord that you know, uh, I had a successful season, you know, and I give praise to God and all their songs are about sin and corruption and this and that and sex and all, they're they're just deceiving themselves. They don't even know who God is. If they did, they wouldn't be doing that. right? There's a certain fear and reverence that comes into our life that we don't do certain things, not because there's a list of things not to do, but because God's holy. And I I live before His eyes. So it doesn't matter what people are saying or who's looking, it's God sees. And if I'm going to come to God with an open heart, then I'm already prepared to come before him because I'm living every day before his piercing eyes. As my father, not as my judge. But there's, this, there's a second thing, and it's found in verse number 22. He says this, And having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water... It is a heart that has been cleansed. So we must have a cleansed heart. But brethren, we don't clean our own heart. We pray and confess our sin. Christ cleans your heart. All right. Matter of fact, the cleansing power has already been established in the cross. So, well, see, if Christ is the end of the law, and the law convicts and condemns of sin, if He's the end of it. And now we don't live according to the Mosaic law. We live according to the law of Christ. All right, That means that the Spirit of God living in me enables me to live according to the law of Christ. And you know what? The law of Christ is above the law of Moses. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard it's been said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you have already committed adultery. What is Jesus doing? He's putting himself above the law. The standard is way higher. Way higher. But that's why you can only live it in the power of the Spirit of God. You can't live it any other way. See, so you come before the Lord with an open heart, and you come before the Lord, you must have a cleansed heart. So if the law is satisfied because Christ bore our sin and guilt, well, then my conscience is clean. And my conscience is satisfied. And my feeling dirty and unclean is overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that what it says in Scripture? When it comes to the Great Tribulation, what was their cry in Revelation 12.11 And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even in the face of death. For my heart has been comprehensively cleansed inside out. By the blood of Christ. And if you notice the end of verse number 22, it says, "And our conscience, "And our bodies wash with pure water," that's not necessarily referring to, that's not referring to baptism in the sense of the consecrations that the priests used in washing their bodies to approach God. But see, that's been taken care of, too, another, another way that God has comprehensively cleansed us. He's cleansed us from the inside out. And the Spirit of God constantly is cleansing us. See, outward cleansing, can, outward cleansing can't cleanse from the pollution of sin. That Jesus, in justification, cleanses a person so that they can enter in. And the Holy Spirit continues to cleanse a disciple of Christ. And he cleanses their innermost thought. And desires through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit and the sanctification of the Word of god right we 're ever growing to put off sin we 're ever growing in our mind to understand more of who God is and more more of what God requires of us, and we 're more we 're growing more in the direction of delighting and enjoying God because we know we 're no longer under condemnation we 're no longer under The judgment of God, but we have received the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And so, therefore, I learned to enjoy it. Have you learned to enjoy your Christian life yet? Enjoy yourself. Enjoy the providences of God every day. And learn from the trials and tribulation that he providentially sends your way for your good and my good. And you don't have to be moaning and groaning in God in prayers and saying, Lord, take this from me. You may pray to the point, Lord, thank you for it. I needed it. It's sanctifying me. It's drawing me near to you. It's getting my eyes off the my my mind off the world. It's getting my eyes off the things I ought not to be spending time with. It gets you sober and clear thinking. That's what it does. I love that passage of scripture in John chapter 13, and I'm, I'm going to close in a few minutes, but just turn there for a minute. Remember Jesus uh, came to his disciples and he washed their feet? It's a strange kind of passage of scripture, isn't it? When you, when you come there. But Jesus was really saying something very important in that passage. He wanted his disciples to know that what he was going to do on the cross was going to cleanse them completely. And he shows them in humility, and in John 13, verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured, out, poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel with which he was girded. Verse 6, so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Verse 8, Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And then he says this in verse 11. For he knew the one who was betraying him, for this reason he says, not all of you are clean. In other words, the one that was not clean was Judas, right? And Judas was going to betray him, but he was relaying before the cross how the cross was going to completely cleanse them and make them acceptable to God. They would not understand when he was speaking, but they understood afterwards what the Lord was saying here. And so, see, so the Lord wanted them to know, listen, what I'm going to do is going to so cleanse you and make you clean before God that you will be able to approach God at any time, anywhere, with boldness and confidence based on the work of God not anything you could ever do. You know what? And in prayer, when the accuser comes to you, the devil, Satan, and his demons, and they begin to point out things in your conscience, and he they, he begins to point out things you're supposed to be doing and you're not doing, and he begins to point out certain sins that are Blatant in your life, and he begins to accuse you. This is what you need to do you need to point the devil to your Lord Jesus Christ. You need to point him to the one who was crucified, the one who was risen, the one who is exalted, the one who is coming again. And you need to proclaim to him the confidence. That God has given you to enter into his presence based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know what? And you could tell the devil, I don't need to fear you. I don't need to fear you because of my Lord and what he's accomplished on my behalf. I don't need to fear you. And so the bottom line is this. True believers, with their doctrine and understanding of who God is and what God has done, come before Him with confidence and come with freedom of speech and courage to express their needs and they come regularly with an honest heart and a heart that has been cleansed but is dirty daily by sin But confession takes care of it because all my sins have been taken care of on the cross. And then when I understand that, I can come to God with all my needs and all my prayers and all my intercessions on a regular basis and know that God has heard me and anticipate answers to those prayers. That's the only way to come. So if you individually and we as a church begin to understand this and come in this way, then let's pray prayers that only God could do. Don't pray prayers that you could do. Don't pray prayers within the limits of human power and ingenuity. Let's pray prayers that only God can do. That people would say, that's impossible. Exactly. Exactly. But I'm coming to a God who has... A unique way to deal in the realm of the impossible, right? And he's able to save people who others would say, Nobody, God would never save that person. Oh, yes, he will. Why? Because a bunch of pre- people have been seeking God's face out for that person's soul. God will never heal that merit. Oh, wait a minute. Come before God in prayer and see what God will do. See, God works in the realm of the impossible. And when you have people who understand prayer, then that realm is open to us. Amen? Let's think through this again, and let's practice it, not just talk about it. Let's pray. Lord, you know our hearts. You don't need to go to any witnesses to testify about who we are. You don't have to get any good counselors to dig out of our heart what's going on there. You see exactly what's happening there. So Lord, let us never come before you trying to hide our sin or manipulate our thoughts before you, Lord. Enable us to come honestly and open. And Lord, enable us to come with that cleansed heart that you have already taken care of for us. So Lord, let us be sensitive to our, the things that make us dirty in our life, the sins, the thoughts. And I pray that we would remove those and confess them knowing that the cleansing power of the blood of Christ is available to us every day because your sacrifice was once for all and eternal. Thank you. And Lord, then let us get up and come before you confidently because we know what you've done for us. We know we're believers in Christ. We know who you are and we're growing in our understanding of who you are. We have the Holy Spirit of God. So Lord, don't, when we quench Him or grieve Him, let us know where we do so we can get those things right. And then Lord, please let us walk into the realm of praying prayers that only you can answer. And I pray Lord, you would do this and you would use us as a church, as a body to bring before you Intercessions and prayers that you truly delight in and that go along with your will, and that you would answer us. And in answering us, you would magnify your name before the world, and you would draw people to Jesus Christ, and you would sanctify your church and make it strong in these days. And I pray you would do it all for the greatness of your name, for the proclamation and broadcasting of your name throughout the world and lord start with us this morning in christ i pray amen let's stand.